Let me take you to a place where nobody dared to go. Welcome back, darlings and gal pals, to another episode of Super Funkin' Serious with Sparkle Sid. That's me. Today is a special day. It's my birthday. To kick off the festivities, we are diving deep into my favorite movie of all time, Xanadu. The movie is much more than a roller disco movie. It has complicated origins during its production and now has a cult-like following that led to a Broadway musical version in 2007 and its 40th anniversary most recently in August of this year. You may not have seen the movie, but you probably have heard the awesome music from the film that is written by John Farrar for the star Olivia Newton-John and Jeff Lynne from the Electric Light Orchestra. Since one interview is not enough, I have two fantastic Xana dudes on today to discuss everything and everything about the film. My first guest is Don Fields, Xanadu fan and webmaster of the Xanadu Preservation Society fan site and Facebook group. His knowledge of the film is very extensive that I just had to get him on. We discuss the origins of the film, the ever-changing script, the music, the film's legacy, and so much more. This is a phenomenal episode that I cannot wait to share with y'all. Enjoy! So, uh, Don, you are a big fan of Xanadu. How did you uh, come about to find the movie and and uh, develop your love for the film? It started off with my fascination with the uh, group, the Electric Light Orchestra. I first bumped mm-hmm. into the movie through one of their fan newsletters. Uh, the band briefly put out a fan club letter. You joined the membership, and that was the first time I heard of Xanadu. So my initial reaction to Xanadu was through ELO. And then uh, I bought a cu- the first two singles of it. I love the ELO stuff, but when I played Magic, my priorities kind of changed. It wasn't just about EL- ELO anymore. It was about Olivia. And uh, I saw the movie. And <laughs> I can't really tell you that much about my f- the first time I saw the movie was on the Sunday of the opening weekend at the UA Theater in Marina Del Rey. And I was just like, I was just smacked. I don't remember exactly everything I experienced while watching that movie, but it, I, I just fell in love with the movie without even questioning it. It just like smacked me in the face. And uh, from that point on, I had just been collecting, researching, and mind you, I'm an old fart, so this was before internet. So I feel I was the only one picking up on this stuff. And uh, yeah, it's it, the movie just like smacked me in the face. And I would say the one of the things that got me into the movie was uh, the fact that it was filmed part of my hometown and backyard at the time. I was. Wow. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Santa Monica, and that park where Kira bumps into Sunny, that's uh, Palisades Park or Paradise Park. And that was where I used to go to a lot. And then, of course, there was Venice Beach, and that was a backyard park, too. So it, it, it was bonus points to see uh, bits of my backyard in this movie. And matter of fact, the corner where Sunny writes behind that van to go to uh, Pan Pacific, that about six blocks from that corner intersection where two of my grandmothers lived. So, and that plus, um, uh, I grew up in all of this post-war, World War II things, 
that was like tiki bars, uh, googie architecture, and uh, and Xanadu just for whatever reason fell into that arena. It uh, it went pretty bold. It would try to cover as much as the World War II post-war uh, culture than any other film tried to do, and you know that whole mess just led me to Xanadu. So yeah, I can, it, uh, that's what the website's all about. All all the boring details I can flesh out of my head with my relation to this movie. <laughs> well, you know, you, you look for these old pockets of Xanadu, and uh, I found some here and there. And basic, basic, the biggest example of Xanadu outside the movie that I experienced was uh, Mardi Gras, carnival season in New Orleans. That is the biggest. Uh, biggest party you will ever run into. It's a rough ride. You know, things happen down there. And, uh, you know, that's, to me, that's a big, big part of Xanadu right there. So Xanadu is more than just a movie. It's just, uh, you know, you can say it's a frame of mind. It's not as crazy as Rocky Howard Picture Show, but it's very much up there. Mm-hmm. So for those unfamiliar with the film, can you uh, provide a little brief description of the plot and what the movie is all about for those who have never seen it before? Oh, uh, plot. Well, it's a very basic plot <laughs> of an artist looking... Well, it is. It's very basic. It's uh, it's basically an artist looking for inspiration, getting his buck kicked, uh, uh, trying to go... Well, he's tried to. Uh, so at the end of the movie, he he, he failed in his uh, task to be self-employed, so he has to go back to his old job. So he needed the extra kick in the pants and his inspiration. And here comes Kira, just to give him the right boot to butt thing. Pardon my French. And he so along along the way, he bumps into that da uh, uh, Danny McGuire, who gives him an extra boost. And it's basically uh, finding your inspiration come hell or high water or questionable written movie and mm -hmm. if you can go beyond the script yeah. you'll find it <laughs> <laughs> speaking of the script uh the script uh developed quite often in the production of the movie can you speak to the mm -hmm. development of how the movie began ver uh, versus what we see on the screen today oh that's a <laughs> I have to laugh. <laughs> loaded <have> question. <laughs> it is a loaded question because, uh, you know, based on my research, uh, when the film was bought by Universal Studios, it was to have been a low-budget, no-star roller disco movie, as one of the original producers uh, said it was. And somehow, after and it, and in the purchase, it uh, it got a production date and a release date of December of 1980. The production date was September of 1979. And after they made that purchase and started the project, Olivia Newton-John, for whatever reason, uh, decided to uh, sign on after reading a 20-page agreement. And that cut the producers in a bind because they couldn't make a low-budget, no-star production with Olivia, especially one year after Greece from the previous summer. So uh, they had to go back to the studio for more money, and they had to expand um, expand the script and eliminate the disco. And they sealed their fate when they went after Gene Kelly. There's a very hilarious interview with uh, Kenny Ortega uh, about talking Gene Kelly into making the movie. But that's, all, that's all another chapter. 
so anyway, she uh, the producers realized they couldn't do a disco movie with Gene Kelly and Olivia, so they went after you know with, with Olivia they went they had John Farrar and they went after Jeff Lynne from ELO, but there was one big problem was that they had a production date. They didn't have enough time to transition the script from disco, roller skating disco to a traditional musical. And that's when the problems with the script happened. They had the same basic plot. They had the same basic characters, but they were just, uh, the script was getting, you know, back and forth, put through the meat grinder while they were trying to get this production off the ground. And when they did, there were a lot of crashes. And they were, I heard rumors that uh, they had to stop filming for one day because the script for that day was so screwed up they had to give it to another series of writers and me and i even heard that the director had a shot at the script so it went through a lot of changes and a lot of scenes were dropped and picked up and uh, it managed to make it to the uh, finish line a matter of fact gene kelly's widow mentioned a few years ago that the last scene they shot was was with the whenever you're away from me number and that was shot after the film officially wrapped and they had a bug gene kelly to get back and do that one more scene he says fine but close set no director no producers just him olivia uh cameraman a couple other people and that's it so it it somehow finished despite the script and that was it was that was one of the big problems with the movie is they just didn't thoroughly transcend the strip script and try to get rid of all the disco they can. So that's the problem with the script. They just didn't have, didn't have a complete one. Mm. But where the uh, script falters, I believe the music excels. Can you talk about the, uh, the development of the music at, at all? The music, uh, John Farrar did an excellent job with the music. Uh, I think the common complaint as far as the music tied in with the movie was they didn't really use magic at all, really. They use it as background music for Sonny's, uh, when Sonny fully discovers Kira inside the Pan, Pan, Pan Pacific Auditorium. And I think the common complaint, and I agree, was here's a song that actually made it num to number one when the film was released. They barely used it. And uh, I'm surprised they coordinated as well as they did with the music, despite the fact that the script was bouncing back and forth and the writers were in the rubber room and somehow they managed to get the music together. Um, there were questions whether or not John Farrar could actually pull off the dancing number because he had to record it. Obviously he had to record it separately from the from the big band to the uh, rock and roll group, but somehow he pulled it off. And Jeff Lynn said that uh, he had to work on these songs for eight months because he, he was getting a lot of notes, getting a lot of uh, corrections. He was originally supposed to do the score, but somehow along the way, um, the director didn't like the score, so they replaced Jeff Lynn's score with a gentleman named Barry, Barry D. Verizon, who did uh, the Warriors movie, the, uh, the movie the producers of Xanadu did before, blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. They managed to did a very good job despite uh, all the changes to the script. I have to give them a lot of credit for that because I can tell it wasn't an easy production to go through. Uh, I think the only person that sang to any of the ELO songs was Olivia. I think that was by design. And, you know, as far as everything else about the music, you know, it, like I said, I'm just surprised it fell in together as well as it did despite the problems with the script and the uh, uh, timeline. 
given that there's lots, there's some really great tunes in the sh in the movie. Do you consider mm -hmm. Xanadu a musical? That is an excellent question. Um, at best, it is a musical. At its worst, it's a music video collection <laughs> because because <laughs> <laughs> nobody sings. Half the songs nobody sings to, especially uh, the ELO songs, except for Xanadu. And Olivia sings almost all of her songs, except for except for Magic. So, uh, yeah, calling it a musical, I'll admit, it's a stretch. It's a music video, but uh, I've seen worse. I mean, people can sing. People can sing to worst songs ever, and people block that. And no, it's not a musical. It's a trash can. You know. You know, you have to compare that to what the Apple or can't can't stop the music. So. <laughs> So it, it stretch of the imagination. It's it is a musical, but you have to give it some headspace. You really have to, for sure. And you have to give it up to forty years for it to finally somewhat have its due. And um, tell me about this marathon that you did on the fortieth uh, anniversary around the fortieth anniversary of Xanadu. Oh, what can I tell you about that? <laughs> Well, you, you uh, watched it many times. Yeah, it's uh, who was it with? <laughs> I have to laugh, <laughs> which I have too. So I'm it guilty. was the longest I ever stayed up in my lifetime. Let's put it that way 24 freaking hours. Same thing with my co mm -hmm. matter of fact, uh, the co host of that, Otis Fodder, is a good friend of mine. We've known each other from the early 90s, and he's a big Xanadu fan. Matter of fact, uh, when we started, uh, we started the marathon on a uh, internet station called Sheena's Jungle Room, which is one of a few uh, uh, internet stations on WFMU.org. And one of our early meetings from earlier this year, uh, Otis and I were joking about doing a 24-hour marathon of all the Xanadu material we somehow collected over the years. And uh, it was, I suggest, well, maybe let's go for 12 hours. You know, I love this thing, but I don't want to burn, burn myself out like Jim Morrison. But Otis, being the most hyperactive, productive person I know, said, no, I want to go 24 hours. Because uh, apparently the station we're doing this for, WFMU, has this small history of doing marathons of any type, any excuse, for publicity, fundraise, primarily for fundraising, and largely for fun. So somehow this WFMU tradition uh, effect inflected Otis, and uh, he talked me into doing full 24 hours, full Monty on this. What carried me in Otis, other than caffeine, and he lives in Montreal, so he had a lot of French coffee and Danishes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the thing he's told me that kept him up. It was just fanboy. People are not, when people get to see and witness this level of fandom on something that has nothing to do with Star Wars and Star Trek, they're just shocked and amazed by it because this is not Disney owned, this is not Marvel, this is a, a movie that came out 40 years ago and somehow is still alive. So, anything this obscure getting boasted this way, people are just shocked and amazed. And when the station uh, announced this event on their main website, we were deluged with questions. Why the hell are you doing this? Why God knows what are you doing? Which is kind of interesting because WFMU specializes in rare Americana recordings and um, not this level of pop culture. 
So people could kind of curious, what's the deal? What's going on? And that's what we did, regardless of any questions. That was, do you have the material to fill us up? Apparently we do. It's just how our metabolism can survive this. And trust me, after the marathon was over, Otis went to bed and I went to bed over here and uh, we just slept on and off for about three days. And then that's where we're getting the emails and your email too. So people are wondering what the hell is going on. Well, that was what was going on. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you have an idea of why Universal didn't acknowledge the 40th anniversary? Do you think it's related to potentially being on the back burner due to COVID-19 efforts or um, anything otherwise no, like that? No, I think is, well, Universal's been pretty down on Xanadu after it left the theaters. It, it broke even. According to Box Office Mojo, it made about 20, yeah, about $20 million. Nobody knows what the real budget was, uh, not even the advertising budget, but they did put some effort into it. So they were, I think what the reason why Universal kind of like backed away from Xanadu was uh, they were, there were a lot of hopes pinned on Xanadu, a lot of hopes. It wanted Xanadu to make Greece money, at least closest to Greece money as it could, but that didn't happen. So Xanadu just remained dormant for decades, and the only person that was willing to talk about Xanadu was Olivia, because her face was smack dab in almost everything related to the movie. Uh, they One of the few pieces of merchandise they put out was the posters with her face on it. So she had, if out of every single person that had to uh, suffer the slings and arrows of the failure, or the initial failure of Xanadu was Olivia. But uh, give her all the credit in the world. She's a professional. She uh, answered the questions when the Xanadu question was asked, and uh, she came back through uh, physical. And she actually played a few of the hits from Xanadu during her physical tour. So she's a, she's a yeah, true professional. But as far as uh, not acknowledging much of anything, Xanadu doesn't, it's, it's, it's corporations in general things like that, and pop culture, pulp culture and you know, corporations. If it makes money, yeah, they'll uh, acknowledge it. But uh, Xanadu, you know, they're, like I said, a lot of hopes were pinned. It didn't happen that way, so they just left it behind. And for a long time, nobody would talk about it. The only person that would talk about it was Olivia because she's a professional and she knows her audience. So I don't think it was had anything to do with uh, current events. It's just that Xanadu is not a big money maker for Universal. That's the uh, you know hard reality and uh, corporate and capitalism. And I'm sounding like Bernie Sanders already, so I'm going to leave it leave it right there. <laughs> this is not like CNBC or anything. Right, <laughs> but the great thing about that, despite if there was ever official. Um, an official release for the 40th anniversary, there were, there's a huge fan community yes. out there. Can you speak to the community that you have, um, especially on Facebook? Oh yeah. I'm yeah. I'm on that group too. Um, we get just, we just got to fight for this movie more or less. I mean, you know, I got, I'm this, I'm this fanboy with a website and a fanboy with a website, but there are other people out there, fanboys and fangirls, Xanadu fans out there. It's kind of like, wired into them old and new that to keep fighting for the film yeah we know the film stinks especially compared to greece and i have been in many fights people ask me you know do you like greece as well personally or realistically because 
you know, you don't want to start fights between fan groups. But uh, no, uh, it's embedded into every Xanadu fan out there. Is that I got to support and stand up for this movie. Yeah, it's imperfect, but I love the damn thing. So whenever a case like the 40th anniversary comes out, that's only natural. Yeah, I've got to stand up for Xanadu. Greece does get a lot of attention, especially during the anniversaries. And uh, as well as they do, it's a much successful film. It's much more popular. Um, technically, it's a better film than Xanadu, to be all honest with you. So, you know, they get to stand up for the movie. Sure, fine, no problem. They go out there and buy the merchandise. But Xanadu, that's just the only real merchandise you get your hands on is the music and the DVD or the Blu-ray, and that's it. Greece, you can fill up a whole closet, but not with Xanadu. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's embedded in us that we just, uh, occasions like that, we stand up for the movie while everybody else just gives us a strange look, especially from the Grease pack. <laughs> <laughs> So I think I I think you answered all my questions there. Um, are you in the mood for some trivia, some Xanadu trivia? Oh sure. Let's see how good or bad I am at this movie. You did all <laughs> this research and you flunked the quiz. Phony. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a fairly easy question if you know general credits. But mm -hmm. um, so in addition to Olivia as Kira, there were eight other muses. Um, they were unnamed in the movie, but they of course had actresses' names. Can you name any? Uh, can you name at least three of them? <laughs> uh, the actresses that play the muses, or the muses themselves? That's uh, we're talking uh, a credibility gap here, because not to blow you quiz here, yeah. all the muses in the movie are named after numbers. <laughs> exactly. I'm looking at them right now. Muse number one, number two, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Can you name at least three, three of the actresses? Yeah. Oh, God. There's Marilyn. Yeah, you got me on that one. I, I'm, so, God, I'm so used to the numbers. I, I've been laughing at that fact for so many. Well, if you don't take that as a warning sign of what you're up against, oops, you know, it'll be like Howard the Duck Part 2. <laughs> um, let's see. There's Marilyn Touchel. She's the Asian lady, one of the Asian muses. Uh, Sarah, I can't pronounce her name. She's an actress. Matter of fact, she was in uh, Red Sonia. Okay. The movie, that's a, that's a second actress. Okay. And of course, Olivia is one of the muses, unless that's part of the quiz. <laughs> oh, so yeah, that's a good trick question. Yeah. It's a very loaded one. Um, <laughs> so. So here's the here's the in order of of they're listed on the credits. So Muse number one is Sandal Bergman. Number two is Lynn Lynn yes. Latham. Uh, Muse number three is Melinda Phelps. Mm. Number four is uh, Cherise Bate. Uh, number five is Juliet Marshall. And then you had mentioned number six, yeah. Marilyn Takuda. Uh, Muse number seven, Yvette Van uh, Voorhees. And then number eight, Terry Beckerman. So yeah. Oh, I knew. Oh, Voorhees. That's the. That's Voorhees. That's the street I used to live in in oh. North Redondo Beach in the eighties. Oh, 80s. Takes, it, takes it back. <laughs> I sure got that one. <laughs> takes it back. There's a lot of. There's a lot of great. <laughs> there's a lot of great background talent that was unnamed in the movie that I have to just highlight, like the the lady who was the um, the cop in um, All Over the World, just the way she's like aggressively walking through, um, through Furoshi. Fighting with that badge on her. 
podcast. Yeah. Oh, I love her. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you have any other favorites? Becca? You know, there's one more uh, uh, gap in the music. Uh, gentleman, David Estrada, he's doing, he's researching all mm -hmm. the uh, extras in the movie. I, I assume you've seen his postings. Yes. He pointed out a very interesting fact. They had a replacement muse. Hmm. They had a muse. They had one. One of the muses was replaced halfway through the production. Hmm. <laughs> so, it, and that sadly shows you what kind of uh, what how crazy things got with the production. So, unfortunately, that's the you know oh hello well. On that note, um, is there uh, where can we find you, Don? Where can we find your website? Um, feel free to plug anything like your social media and your uh, Donna's Dump website. I'll have to mention Donna's Dump ORG because that's the uh, easiest way to find the Xanadu Community Center. I mean, not well, Xanadu Preservation Society. And when you go on to Xanadu Preservation Society, you can actually click on the uh, Facebook group. Matter of fact, I should give a shout out to uh, Otis Fodder because that site was his, he came up with the idea of a Xanadu site in 1999, 1998, 1999. So he gets the blame uh, and praise for starting that whole idea off. And uh, I host a weekly radio show called The Hour of Crap on Fridays, Sheena's Jungle Room. And you can find Sheena's Jungle Room on WFMU.org. And uh, believe me, we all play very, questionable material that's more questionable than Xanadu itself. Trust me. Even more questionable than the Apple soundtrack. And someone on our radio station is threatening to play the Apple and can't stop the music. So anybody complains that if some, if, something, if anybody complains that Xanadu stinks, show them the Apple and can't stop the music and that will shut them up. I guarantee it. Because I, I went to the New Beverly... Years ago, I went to the New Beverly Center in West Hollywood. That's the one where Quentin Tarantino owns. And they had 1980s night. And they were playing Xanadu and the Apple. Trust me, Xanadu was just the opener for the cinema hellscape that was the Apple. And you should do a separate podcast on the Apple because holy cheese whiz and a cracker in a chicken basket, that will test your patience and humanity. Um, and I've seen both of those movies. I can comment on them and they are just as terrible, but they're on their own right. Definitely worth another episode. <laughs> Did you know that Olivia um, was offered Can't Stop the Music for the lead, the lead girl and yeah. she turned it down for obvious reasons? <laughs> yeah, I think that saved her career. Forget Xanadu. That choice of not doing that Village People movie saved her career. <laughs> and I exactly. love the way Alan Carr was... Well, I love the way Alan Carr was so upset. He took that personally. Mm -hmm. He says, I, I produced Grease. I can do it again. And no, you can't do it again. Exactly. Especially for grossing that amount of money. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Is there anywhere else we can find you? Anywhere else? No, that's about it. I'm also somewhere on. Uh, Somewhere on uh, Twitter and Facebook, but uh, all that uh, social media link business baloney is uh, at donaldstump.org. And uh, yeah, Sheena's Jungle Room. That's I get to torture people one hour a week with my questionable musical tastes. Mm -hmm. So, and if anybody out there is a big fan of Exotica, 
uh, low rent music and other questionable details. Chino's Jungle Room. We'll keep, we'll keep you entertained whether you like it or not. Perfect. Yeah, for fans of this podcast, we'll love your sites and I will plug them and I will send links to them and people will be coming and talking to you. <laughs>
I loved it because usually that meant I got free tickets to the shows. Sometimes as many times as you want to see the show, you could just keep going. Um, but also you got to see, you know, cast photos that the public doesn't get to see, uh, you know, because usually when there's a musical that's released, they have like seven to eight, you know, PR photos. And that's, that's what everybody sees. They're on the side of the theater. They're in the, you know, timeout. They're, they're in any magazine. So, you know, right there from the start, I, I realized that there was uh, something missing in the Broadway cast album world. And that was the fact that it, it didn't really go behind the scenes too much. It just kind of, they just kind of doled out what was already there. So from the get-go, I was like, I want as many photos as I can. I want sketches of, you know, the set. I want costume sketches. I just, you know, I, I just wanted the cast albums to be almost like a souvenir for that kid that comes in from Ohio who's never, you know, who can't come to see a show on Broadway, but he gets to carry home something as close to being there as possible. Uh, and I was really thrilled that for the most part, there wasn't much pushback from you know, each each theater, you know, because everybody handles a different, everybody has a different photographer, everybody might have a different press agent and stuff like that. So I was I was always worried that, you know, be like, no, yeah, look, only use these seven photos. But for the most part, over the past, you know, 20 years or so, everybody's been really cool about just giving me not free reign, uh, but, you know, a, a good reign to, to be creative and, and do something special because uh, that's all I really want to do. I just want to make it really special for both the cast and the fans of that show. So anyway, so I did nine, I did, you know, dozens of others, just kept doing them. And I got uh, a, an inkling that they, Xanadu was coming to Broadway. So I just started put, putting out feelers. I was like, you know, hey, I, I essentially said this to one of the people I work for. I'm like, mm -hmm. if you get a chance to do Xanadu on Broadway, I will do this CD design for free, you know? Um, because I was just like, I need to be a part of this. This is like, you know, this is my destiny. I must, I must do this. And I went as far as, to opening day of the Broadway show, not opening day, but the day they started selling tickets, they did this promotion. It was like, um, bring your driver's license. And if you were born before 1980, which is when the, the movie came out, then you can yeah. get tickets for maybe like $29 or something like that. So I was like, fuck yes, this is, I'm gonna do this. So I got in line. Uh, some people, I think you were supposed to like wear roller skates or you know dress in 80s garb or whatever, but I, this was 2004 or what, seven, nine, what I rollerbladed down there. That was my, you know, new version of it. And I was like, I'm going to stand in line with rollerblades, not roller skates, but still. And, you know, there is the creative team behind Xanadu hanging out, trying to make this, um, you know, like a, a press thing, you know, like, oh, people have spent the night. They're intense. They want to get their $29 Xanadu tickets. And uh, so I just started chatting with those people and they were all very young, usually in Broadway, the, the, the people that are producing these shows, they've been around for a while, they have lots of money. They're usually, you know, they're a team. This, from what I gathered then, were a bunch of young people who had done well downtown and like, you know, in stocks and banking. And so it was, you know, they all looked like they were like under 30. And I really just kind of dug that, you know, cause they were like, we want to make Xanadu, we want to make it kind of kick ass. And, uh, and we're doing our own thing. And so I didn't, if, if they had been like, you know, a 60 year old executive at like, you know, Sony, I wouldn't have walked up and been like, Hey, I want to design your CD. But since they were like, you know, guys and ladies around my age, I just walked up. I was like, hi, I'm a graphic designer. I've designed this and I love this album. And, uh, you know, I I'll do it for free. I kept throwing that out, you know, cause I just wanted my chances of getting this to be, you know, as, as best as possible. Anyway, about, I'd say a month into the show, I got a call from one of the clients I, I designed for, PS Classics, that's the name of the record company. And they're like, hey, remember when you said you want to design Xanadu? 
well, uh, we're, we're going to do it, but don't worry, we'll pay you. And I was like, even better. You know, like I was ready to do it for free, but they're like, yeah, we'll pay you. Uh, so I was just elated. Uh, that was 2007. And um, I started doing everything. I could. Like I went to the, uh, the recording, the CD. I, you know, I wanted to hang out with the cast. I just thought they were all crazy talented. And I just loved the fact that they were taking this movie that I love and putting such a, a fun, irreverent, but still very touching spin to it. And, you know, I was just tickled to death that suddenly this movie that I had loved since I was nine was getting, you know, um, you know, more popular, you know, because of the, the show. So I was, I was thrilled. Like I said, I did everything I could to make sure I gave the fans of the, um, the movie and fans of the show as much as they could get. You know, I got them, like I said, costume sketches, you know, uh, all these really just cool pictures that nobody had seen yet. Um, I went through hundreds and hundreds, you know, and some that I really loved were like, oh, can't use that because that scene's been cut, you know, but I just, again, loved mm -hmm. the, the women in the, the drapey muse dresses, you know, all, all the rainbow colors. I just, I loved it all. And, and I wanted to kind of design the Broadway cast album in the same vein as the the movie soundtrack, which has that lovely kind of, you know, navy purple art deco and in, and the other side is the pink you know art deco I, I loved the fact as a kid that one side was all olivia and the other side was all elo and uh that it had a different color scheme and everything so i'm like i'm gonna even if they don't know even if these young producers and the broadway people don't know enough about the movie i do and i'm a big enough fan that i can throw in some little tidbits and you know just fun things for the the movie fans to see like so when they opened up the cast they're like oh because like for example in the movie when the muses you know go up to the heavens they're followed by a big streak of neon you know now that's not going to happen uh on, on the broadway show but they did do one funny thing they had streamers colored streamers and so when they'd zoom away the streamers would fall behind them that was very cute but in the book i actually sat there and i silhouetted the actors and actresses which took hours and uh, and created the neon glow and gave that to them in the booklet. So in the booklet, they looked like they came from the movie. Of course, like I said in the Broadway show, they were not actually glowing like they had been hanging out a nuclear you know site or whatever. But um, but you know once it was done, I I was tickled. I I just designed this album more so for myself and other Xanadu fans than I did for you know let, let's just say Broadway. I did this for people that love the movie and I was and nobody said nobody was like no can't do this they were like they loved it so i felt thrilled and honestly at that point i remember saying to myself i can quit i can quit doing you know graphic design because everything since i was nine led me to this point because when i watched xanadu as a nine-year-old the male character sunny or is it danny sunny um sunny you know he painted album covers and i didn't know that was a as a nine-year-old living in southwestern virginia i didn't know that that was a a career anybody could have, you know? So I was like, oh, this is, this is cool. You get to paint big things, go outside and hang the album covers on the, you know, outside, you know, fun, fun, fun. So I, you know, it set that movie in 1980, you know, pretty much set in motion my career, you know, for 20 years later. So it, it really felt like an honor to be able to design that cast album. But like I said, I, I was ready to hang it up and be like, I've reached the apex of my career. This is everything I ever wanted to do. Uh, but of course, you know, it's, it, I, wasn't, I wasn't at retirement age, so I couldn't, you know, just say no. But, you know, it, it would have been a lovely ending to the story if I'd been like, goodbye forever. You know, I've, I'm done designing. I'm, I, don't, I can never design anything as good as Anna do, you know. But it actually opened the door to a lot of other good things. I got to, I ended up designing 
cast albums for the cast of Xanadu. Um, uh, solo albums, I should say. So I did solve them for Cheyenne Jackson and Carrie Butler, um, Jackie Hoffman, Marty Thomas, you know, like pretty much anybody in the cast that put out an album over the next year or two uh, through my connection to doing that, I got to design their albums too. So it felt like Xanadu, for me, Xanadu, the Broadway experience lasted longer than the show it did it, itself. You know, I, I hated that it closed so early because it's something that could have easily, but still been playing here in New York or on tour because it was a show that didn't require a big theater or a, a big uh, pit orchestra. You know, it's a, it's a small show that can be taken anywhere. And so uh, I'd love for it to come back in maybe an off-Broadway form somewhere down the road just because it's, it's something that everybody loves. And it, it, it's not a show that you need to know the movie to enjoy. Uh, it's just, it's got great music and it's the script uh, written by Douglas Carter Bean is just so funny. It, it both makes fun of the movie while loving it at the same time, you know? And I know that when Olivia mm -hmm. saw it, she was in like the front row one night with uh, you know, her writing partner, uh, John Farrar, or Farrar, and they were just in stitches, just loved it, loved it, loved it, you know? And so uh, I feel like if, if she gave her stamp of approval, then anybody would love this show, you know? So anyway, yeah, so that's, that's the basic story. Yeah, that yeah that that summed up everything all at once. It went back to your past, went to the future, to the present, <laughs> all over, all over your timeline there. Um, yeah, so let's talk about the show. Let's let's talk about the show. As you mentioned, it opened up in uh, two thousand seven. Um, I believe it closed mm -hmm. later that year, or the year uh, shortly the year after. Um, it closed and, right um, after the Tonys in June of two thousand. I believe so. Yeah, I remember they did a Tony thing. Um, can you talk a little bit about mm -hmm. the uh, about some of the major differences yeah. from the film to the to the uh, Broadway show? As far as like, um, think one thing I can think of in particular is the the addition of some songs from um, from John Farrar oh, yeah. as well as uh, Jeff Lynne. We added the Evil Muses, who added in a different element of yes. evil. We got some we got some burlesque fans going on. Um, anything else you can yes, think of? We did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like one of the oh god, I mean, like the first time I saw it, and I actually when I remember, I remember getting those tickets uh, in that line, you know, for I think the tickets cost nineteen dollars and eighty cents on opening day. I think that was the whole gimmick, you know, show up, and if you were born before mm -hmm. nineteen eighty, you can get your Broadway tickets. And you just looked on a map, you know, and you picked the date and your seat. And I picked them for my birthday, which was later that month. I went with my sister, who was also, just because she's my sister, she had to enjoy the movie too, because I, whenever I'd go to the movie at nine or 10 years old, she'd go as well, you know? So she watched it. We used to roller skate to the soundtrack in our basement all the time, you know? Um, so we went, and I was just tickled pink. I knew nothing about what the show was going to be about. I didn't know that it was going to be, you know, funny, and they had all this new spin on it. But yeah, so the differences, being such a movie fan, first off, the dialogue is fantastic it's hilarious you know the the dialogue in Xanadu the movie is more or less just something to kind of stitch together the next you know song and dance number in a way you know um you know it's thin on plot and and we love it for that you know because I've heard that they were literally writing pages of the script the day before they shot them you know so right you know so I maybe they didn't have a chance to step back and be like oh we can make this story a little bit better if we did this I know nothing about you know that but I can tell you with the um the Broadway thing, they sat down and they're like, they devised 
a way to bring in the whole 1980s thing and and combine it with the, the cutest pop culture references. Um, you know, in the movie, the muses literally just zoom by and they play background characters. They, they really aren't characters. They're just women in fun dresses. On the Broadway show, they're, they dumbed down the muses from 13 to like eight, just for, you know, for budget reasons, I'm sure, you know, keep it on a small stage. But each of those muses, you know, were a character. And especially they had two evil muses who were there to thwart uh, Kira slash Olivia, you know, slash her plans. And they were played by Mary Testa and Jackie Hoffman. And those two women just, they made that, the show is already great. Putting these two like comedic talents on top, they let them do what they wanted. Now, I'm not sure if the producers liked this, but both of those women are so good at like improv and comedy that every night in the show, there would be a moment where each of them would get to essentially improv their own thing. Sometimes it would last 10 seconds, sometimes it would last two minutes, you know, but the cast knew it was coming, the producers knew it coming from what I've heard, the producers were probably like, can you just stick to the script, please? But as a fan of the show, it made people want to go back and see it again because there was something truly live about it. It didn't feel like this was something that people just memorized and performed. This felt like a small company of people who were, again, in on the joke. They're like, we're going to make, we're going to sing Olivia Newton-John songs, dress like the 80s, and we're going to take moments and just, you know, be funny without warning. And uh, it gave the show this kind of improv feel, which, you know, anything can happen, and often it did. The um, One of the cool things they did, set design-wise, they put the seats on the stage. So there were almost like a little, um, like a church baptismal behind everything, you know, where everybody could just sit and watch. Probably held maybe like 50, 60 people, you know, but it, it allowed you to be part of the action. And I sat up there numerous times. It was really fun. But yeah, so like what those two evil muses would do, sometimes they'd spot somebody in that little onstage seating section and kind of make fun of them, you know, just pick at them, you know, massage their hair, you know, do stuff in the middle of the scene. And the audience just, you know, loved it because you just don't normally see that on a Broadway show. You don't see the actors literally like waving their fingers through, a, you know, the audience member's hair, you know, so small things like that made this show so special. Um, another thing was, mm -hmm. as we know, Xanadu, the movie was made in 1979, released in 1980. So it, it definitely had the, the trappings of a, of that era, you know, style wise, but in the Broadway show, they took it up such a notch, you know, like, it was neon roller skates, glitter, glitter, glitter. You know, it was it was really, you know, just a lovely kind of callback to that era in a fun way. It, it, almost in the way that you would, if you were going to an 80s themed dress up party, this is how you dress, you know? You know, big hair. And there was a moment, maybe when she was singing Magic or one of the songs, where one of the muses brought a fan up to the character of Kira so that her hair would blow back in the wind while she sang, uh, just like it would show up on a movie. and. And you actually saw the muse pick up a fan and hold it, you know, and it was just the funniest thing. But again, it was irreverent. It was just stuff you don't expect to see. Like I said, the, the actors, the cast, the, uh, the writer, they were all in on the joke and stuff like that just made, you know, the songs are beautiful to hear Carrie Butler sing magic is, is gorgeous, but to have her do that and do it with a fake Australian accent overdone while having somebody hold a fan up to her, you know, is even better. You know, it, it just made it 400 times funnier. So that, that, so many things like that were just such a treat. One of the, yes, you had mentioned that they added some extra songs. That was such a big surprise. They took uh, a couple extra ELO songs that were hits from the era, like Evil Woman, and they gave that to the two evil muses, and they got to just go completely camp-tastic with that, you know, like you said, with the big fans, you know, it was 
just lovely. Ate it up, you know, people fucking love that. They did Have You Never Been Mellow. And one of my favorite, I was so worried about this, but the cast album for Xanadu actually includes the full country song, which as you know, the actual album left it off. And that was always, you know, I hated that as a kid because that's such a fun moment in the, uh, in the movie. And then for it not to appear on the album was always like, what? You know, I remember there's a jukebox at our local Pizza Hut that had the Magic 45 on it and you could play Full Country as the B-side. That's the mm. only place that I got to hear it again. You know, so I would just go, every time I go to Pizza Hut, I go play Full Country. Um, so I was tickled to death that A, they made sure that that little tiny wonderful song was in the musical, but it's also in, you know, it's, it's in the cast album. Um, of course, in this version, it's just called Fool. They don't do the country set section. They don't do the, there's me and my dad beauty. They don't do that part. They just turn the, oh, and it's a cute little like minute long number. Cute, funny, you know, campy. And I think all Xanadu fans were probably like, finally, this song is getting, it's, you know, <laughs> you know, it's getting what it deserved all along. So um, I was tickled with that. I mean, it's, it's great to have Have You Never Been Mellow an evil woman. And they also did strange magic from ELO. They added that in. And that was a moment where the two evil muses cast a spell on Sonny and Kira to kind of mess up, you know, their, 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 their love. And so it was just, it was really cute. It, the whole idea of having meddling older sisters and it gave the plot more actually dry because, you know, she's got to make Sonny's dream come true, but she also has to do this, you know, so as you can go back to to Mount Olympus with her dad and see there's another like stroke of genius in my mind. They took at the very end, you think you're just watching Xanadu and suddenly she gets on Pegasus. There's no Pegasus in the movie. She gets on Pegasus <laughs> and she's up in uh, <clears throat> Mount Olympus and suddenly Mount Olympus. Now they're making fun of, Oh my God, I can't remember the movie. What's the movie? Um, Clash of the Titans. Now mm -hmm. they're sending yep. off Clash of the Titans, which is also like same era, like 1980 type thing. So if you grew up, you, you know, <clears throat> of that time, you, everybody watched Xanadu, everybody watched Clash of the Titans, because these were movies that were always like on HBO over and over and over and over for like five years. So every kid saw these movies and it didn't even occur to me that they were gonna lampoon that movie as well. You know, just so that they referenced Harry Hamlin, you know, they just, they threw out so many things and so many in the audience, they didn't get it because let's say the audience might be, you know, filled with 28 year old, you know, fans of Broadway or 28 year old fans of, Carrie Butler or Cheyenne Jackson, they may have not, you know, watched every 1980s movie. So they may not understand the Harry Hamlin reference. They may not understand, you know, the Clash of the Titans thing. But it, the genius of the script is that it didn't matter. If you enjoyed those references, the, the musical was that much better. Even if you didn't, the stuff was still funny as shit. You know, it was just, they did such a good job. They had a small orchestra. It was mainly just, um, a keyboard player, guitar, bass, drummer, whatever. And what they, one of the big jokes was like, you know, there's supposed to be 13 muses, you know, um, or 12, you know, and the show only has eight. And at one point, you know, Sonny's like, Th 13 sisters, you know, where are the other ones? She's like, oh, that's Bob on the keyboard, you know, Danny on the drums, you know, you never saw them, but the joke was the other muses are making the, the music the whole time, you know? So they just had really fun ways of like, you know, like maybe that whole decision was a budget thing. Maybe they're like, hey, we can't really hire 13 dancers because we're doing, we're, the show was on Broadway's smallest stage. Um, I can't think of the name of the theater right now, but it's the smallest one. So they had to come up with ideas mm -hmm. to Helen be, Hayes uh, you know, smart. Yeah, Helen Hayes, smart about the size. So maybe they just, they cut down the nerve muses for that reason. But one of the nice things, you know, if you're gonna cut it down, you gave each muse a personality, you know, they gave them layers and fun. 
And then when they performed um, Don't Walk Away at the Tonys, you know, the next year, then they brought out the big guns and actually brought in every understudy and everybody else that was, you know, in the cast to be on stage. So they finally had like a full dozen muses up there. And it, you're like, oh, this is how it could have been if they were in a bigger stage and it was, you know, a, a, a bigger, you know, budget. But uh, it didn't, it didn't matter. As beautiful as that was, that Tony performance, there was something so special about the musical being um, tight and small. You felt like you were seeing something special and you felt like these actors were your friends because it wasn't a cast of 30 and it wasn't, you know, 30 pit musicians. It was, it felt like these eight actors and you, you know, and they're winking at you, they're playing with your hair, you know, they're, they're making jokes at you sometimes, you know, just so cute. And they, they even appreciated the people that kept coming back. They recognized, they're like, oh, this dude's been here 15 times. This guy's been here 30. And they'd, they'd <laughs> hang out and chat with him about that. You know, and I just, I love that. You know, like, that's what I wish Olivia would have done when I saw the show 13 times in 1980. If she had, you know, come backstage with me at the theater and be like, hey, thanks for coming. But these people did that. And it was, it was really, it was just a really special moment for me. And I think for anybody that was a fan of the movie, um, mm. you know. How many times did was, you see the show? I think I saw it. 17 and I had tickets to see it two more times, but then they closed and uh, I even had tickets to see it closing night, but um, I had to go out of town, I think for a funeral or something. So I missed mm. that. Um, but I saw it so many times, you know, it's like, I, there, mm. there were people that saw it so many more times than me, you know, so, uh, <laughs> there was this one guy that just kept saying, it. I was like, good for you. You're, you're doing, you're doing my dream. You know, it's like, <laughs> if yeah. I could have gone every Friday night, I would have, it was one of those things that when people came into town, I'd go get tickets. I'm like, we're gonna go see Xanadu. And, you know, cause it was just, it's 90 minutes. It's the perfect time. You know, it's fun. You can go eat dinner. You know, it was just, loved it. I wish it were still on over and over. Just wish it were always on, loved mm -hmm. it. And um, shortly after the um, Broadway show closed, they tried to kickstart a tour in, here in mm -hmm. Chicago. And I ended up seeing it 14 more times. And I sat mostly on stage and became the person that got molested essentially on stage a yeah. lot. I remember my very last show, the evil muses were like rubbing me up and they actually kissed me and left like these really bright red lipstick marks on my oh face my God, the rest great. of the show. But that show was really phenomenal too. It was, a, it was they, they kept the small stage element so they did a smaller theater mm -hmm. as well. And it worked, it worked really well to the point where, you know, the evil muses recognized me every time they were, they first got on stage. They're like, oh, hey, you know, they would kind of like knowingly look at you, you know, yeah. oh, this kid again. But that's yeah. the, one of the beautiful things about the show is it encouraged that community of fans it who did. wanted to see it the, the show bajillions of times later, you know, yeah. sit on stage, yeah. uh, get even if it's the cheap, cheap seats, mm -hmm. at least they were there mm -hmm. being enthusiastic on stage to encourage the rest of the audience to be yeah. enthusiastic about it. And I think that's why it, th it thrived longer than most people planned it, especially with producers who were, mm -hmm. you know, looking at it with a stern eye from the beginning. They're like, mm, a movie ba or a musical based on a movie that didn't do very well. Is this even going to do well itself? And then it ended up doing almost mm -hmm. exceedingly well than we planned, <laughs> which I love. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly felt it could have had longer legs if they had, this is not something I, I usually like with Broadway shows with, there was like a two week period when Jackie Hoffman got married and she left. So they brought in Whoopi Goldberg to play her part. And, and Whoopi isn't so much a singer, yes. but it was just the, the draw of like, Whoopi Goldberg's here. And then it was packed every freaking day. Like my mom and I had tickets were like, it's packed. It's like Wednesday afternoon and the show is like, which was great, but it just, you know, at that, that had been maybe like six or seven months into the run, you know, and <clears throat> February isn't the best time for theater, you know, because people aren't really coming to New York in February that often because it's super cold. 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, to have Whoopi like that, you know, like boosted it up. And while, like I said, I'm not usually a fan of stunt casting, but if they had kept doing something like that, you know, bring in somebody famous, you know, here and there, I think it could have kept the show running on Broadway a little bit longer. But, you know, typically if a show is struggling uh, even somewhat and they don't get any Tony wins, then they don't get to, you know, be like Tony winner. And then they just, you know, in June when the new season starts, it's very difficult to to keep the momentum going. But I do feel that they could have, uh, and, and maybe, you know, like I said, there were still plans. The tour was great. I didn't, get, I had tickets to see one of the shows in Delaware, but I didn't get to go. But I later found out that one of the girls, I'm, I'm also a musician and I'm in a band and, and she was in the touring company. And I was like, what? You know, so when I found this out one day in a van with her, I sat her and I was like, who did you play? Oh, I want to, you know, I was so tickled. And she kind of, she saw a new level of freakness to me because she had no idea that I was such a big fan, you know, mm -hmm. that I knew so much about it. But uh, I was tickled. I was like, oh, great. God, I just want to see it so badly. I, I, the tour honestly could have gone on and on. I saw that they attempted to do a new version of the tour last year with drag queens as the evil mm. muses. And that's such a oh, smart no. idea. I don't know what happened to it. They had dates planned. They had the website updated. And then just, they're like, we're not doing this. Maybe it was a budget thing or drag queen. <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't know. But that, again, I was excited that, you know, it was someone was making it come back. And I know that Olivia actually built a theater out in Australia to let the, the Australian version of the Broadway show run. You know, she gave it an actual theater. And I, I love that. That's just, you know, so everybody in Australia to go see it and, and laugh and love. And also brought these songs back. These songs that, in my opinion, mm -hmm. not just because I was a nine-year-old fan, like, but, you know, the way these songs were, were written and produced, you know, when you listen to them in headphones or like in a big movie theater, that you you actually hear magic because you know you've got the the thirty you know synthesizer zithers going back and forth you know between the stuff that you know ELO had and then the Olivia and, and John Farrah stuff even it had this just really it sounded futuristic it just sounded so cool it's I think I feel like the soundtrack has aged remarkably well and I was like super tickled to see like you know last month that the soundtrack was like number five on Amazon you know because uh, mm, you know nice. people because of the 40th anniversary of it so I was like I, I just want more people to to know these songs they're they're beautifully performed and they're timeless and they sounded great on the Broadway stage but you know nothing will ever come to, in my opinion uh, to, to the, as close as they sounded as the, the magic they had on the the actual soundtrack you know. Mm. beautiful work yeah that's that a wonderful sentiment sentiment for sure yeah i was actually curious are you down for a quick little trivia question about the broadway show sure <laughs> oh yeah let's just go for it <laughs> okay yeah might as well i'm actually making this up as we go i forgot i usually prep this so this is really funny but i can probably know the answers because i hope I okay know. okay so Let's talk about the two lead characters <laughs> of the Broadway show. We got Cheyenne Jackson and Carrie Butler. Mm -hmm. Can you name mm -hmm. three other shows mm -hmm. they were in pr prior to Xanadu each? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I can. I, I designed CDs for both of them. Um, Carrie was in Bat Boy. She was in um, Hairspray. And she was in, um, I saw her in, well, that's, that was too recent. She, let me think, something before that. Hold I on. Hold I almost on. forgot too. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I said hairspray. Oh crap! I, all I can think of now is uh the the one with the the flower that the you know with the yeah little, little shop of horrors, horrors that's that the came one, out yeah. too. Um, that's not right. Okay, yeah, but there, there's there's three, but not. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then Cheyenne, um, I actually did another CD with him and it was uh, Finian's Rainbow. That was a Broadway show he mm -hmm. did, I think right after. Um, he was in Alter Boys Off-Broadway, um, which is, you know, that, maybe that doesn't count, but that's super mm -hmm. cute. And he was in um, All Shook Up, an Elvis medley mm -hmm. type thing that he did. Yep. So yeah, that that's, that's exactly what, okay, that's, cool. actually those are exactly the same ones I would remember. If he had said any other show, like you'd be like, like okay. the the like a show a if you just made up a show name, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's right. I'm sure it's right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I usually fact check, but that was yeah, that was that's exact. Good job, you did you did very well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, it was wonderful to have you on the show. I I really appreciate your enthusiasm for the show and for um, being able to share your story about being involved with the Broadway show in some some way. And and I do have the album somewhere. I have to find it. Lost. It used to be on top of a Xana shrine that I had. So I worshipped. I almost <laughs> literally worshipped your work in in unintended. You know, <laughs> unintentionally, of course. <laughs> but I do want to thank you, Derek, for your time. No, no. Um, is there any is there any place that people can find you? Find me. You website, social hmm. media. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I'm on social media, but it's it's boring. It's mostly just pictures of my nephews and my dog. Uh, but uh, you know, yeah, I do have a a gay greeting card company and uh, a, like a gay gift company, and I'd love for people to check that out. We have some sometimes some Xanadu inspired stuff. In fact, I'm playing around with making like a Xanadu type t-shirt or something like that. But uh, it's mm -hmm. called Peachy Kings, P-E-A-C-H-Y-K-I-N-G-S, peachykings.com. Uh, and then Queer Cards, spelled K-W-E-E-R-K-A-R-D-S, uh, K-C-A-R-D-S, Queer Cards and Peachy Kings. Yeah, that those are the two things I'm spending most of my time with. It's, uh, it's just an opportunity to you know, do some really great design work um, and do it kind of in the same vibe that it was Xanadu, you know, make fun stuff for gay people that gay people appreciate, you know, essentially, you know, like, like in the greeting card world, if you were going to go buy a gay greeting card, you go to Hallmark and it's like the most generic looking shit you've ever seen, you know? So I was like, these gays need cards made by other gays or queers need cards made by other queers, you know? So that was our goal. And we have, we have cards for, you know, for, for lesbians, for, for gays, for, you know, uh, bears for, you know, trans, you know, for everything. And we even have a line of Tama Finland uh, merchandise, which is really cute um, and sexy and fun, you know. So I'm, that's what I'm spending most of my time doing right now. I am doing another uh, CD coming mm. up soon. And it's really cool because it's kind of full circle. It's uh, Antonio Banderas in A Chorus Line, which they recorded this uh, past fall in Spain. He built a whole theater for it, just like Olivia built a theater for Xanadu. He built it in his hometown in Spain so he could put on a Spanish-speaking version and, and sung of a chorus line. I'm, a, I'm about to start on nice. that. So that cast album will probably come out probably like October, November, you know, so I'm happy to be, you know, working with Antonio again. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to, you know, work in anything Olivia-centric, but, you know, I don't know if they're ever going to do a uh, Broadway version of Two of a Kind, so I may not ever get that chance <laughs> to do it again. But if they did, I'm... I'll be the guy knocking on doors saying, let me do this for free, you know? Yeah. So it's always a treat, such a treat. And thank you for loving that cast album. That was such a, a joy to, to work on. And, you know, I still have a copy. It was right on the desk till we moved. It was always there. Cause it just, it, again, felt like the, uh, the apex of everything I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So thank you for letting me discuss it with you. It's been a real treat to, to talk about the movie and the show with other fans. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Derek. You are a national treasure to the Xanadu community and, I look forward to your post every time on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs>
For more information about today's guest or the media we mentioned in today's episode, please see the show notes in your local podcasting app or visit vicuriousmedia.com slash podcast. This is Sparkle Sid signing off for another episode of Super Funkin' Serious. We hope to see you next Thursday for another fantastic episode of Cheeky Chat. Also, don't forget to be your funking best and I'll see you next time. Goodbye, beautiful darlings and gal pals. Mwah! <laughs>